All right, so it's been a couple of weeks since we've been together because of the wonderful gospel meeting that we had last weekend. So what I'd like to do just for a few minutes is back up, kind of start over and review a little bit. And then after that review, we will move into chapter three. So today, if you look at your schedule, we are scheduled for chapter three, uh, the first 13 verses. We'll slow down a little bit for the rest of the quarter. We still have another gospel meeting coming, but we'll slow down a little bit uh, because as we come up on chapters four through six, that's the part of the letter that really gets into specific application for us as Christians. And so uh, we're spending a little more time, two weeks per chapter from here on out, as opposed to a week per chapter. All right, so uh, a little bit of history, which we started out with our, in our introduction. Uh, Paul taught briefly at Ephesus during his second missionary journey. That was AD 52, and left Priscilla and Aquila in Ephesus after he left. He did not stay very long. He taught a little bit there, uh, but did have a fair amount of interest. So he returned then on his third missionary journey, and that was A.D. approximately 54 to 56, and he was there for how long? Three years. Yeah. A long time in, in the time periods that he would spend most places, right? So he was there for three years. Um, and Acts 19.10 says this took place for two years so that all who lived in Asia, heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. That's a very important statement because that statement says that throughout Asia, Paul and those that were preaching and working with him were able to spread the gospel over that time period uh, to all the Jews and Greeks. Now, when we were looking through Acts, um, God performed a lot of miracles through Paul. Many of the Gentiles gave up their practices of magic and uh, idolatry for Christ. And, and that was uh, pretty amazing to see. Acts 19.20 says, so the word of the Lord was growing and prevailing mightily. Again, another, another wonderful statement when we see that. So most of his work occurred in 54 to 56 there, and this epistle was written around when? Kind of 61 to 63, okay? This is one of the prison epistles, and so in these time frames are good to keep in mind because he spent three years there, but it had been uh, five years basically since he had been there. So, you know, he gets word on what's taking place there, but it's been a little while. So, Timothy remained in Ephesus and received instruction from Paul in 1 Timothy 1, 3, and 4 regarding the Judaizing teachers and those teaching strange doctrines. So, we see little bits of what goes on in Ephesus uh, throughout the New Testament. All right, so chapter 1. We saw Paul greet the saints at Ephesus and provide 
the introduction of the blessings that God has provided to the saints through his son, Jesus, and the relationship between Christ and his church. And I said a primary verse for me uh, in chapter 1, but throughout the entire book is verse 3, chapter 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him in love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself according to the kind intention of his will. Now, we made note of the fact when we were talking about chapter 1 that in Christ or in him throughout this letter is mentioned over 30 times. And that's important to us to remember because it helps us understand what Paul was, the message that he was getting through to the church at Ephesus. So over 30 times. So chapter 2, we discussed the fact that uh, the, the Ephesians formerly served Satan, verse 3. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. So he goes on to explain that it was uh, through God's rich mercy and love that they were saved by grace through the blood of Christ. Key verse for chapter 2, at least for me as I see it, is verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is a gift from God. And we discussed uh, grace and works, and verse 10, uh, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. So we talked about the fact that although we are not saved by our works, We are created for good works. God expects us to be doing the works that he has has provided for us. The rest of chapter 2, Paul starts to discuss the relationship between Gentile and Jewish Christians and God. And he states the fact that the blood of Christ has brought Jew and Gentile together. Which, of course, is kind of the key message throughout this letter. Verse 19 reads, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household. So today, let's, let's kind of start when we left off. Uh, we didn't quite get all the way through chapter 2. So let's start in chapter 2, verse 19, and we'll go from there through the first uh, 13 verses in chapter 3. So if you would please... Let's follow along at the end of chapter 2, verse 19. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole building being fit together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. So verse 19 says, you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household. So as Christians, 
Each saint is not only a member of the church, the household of God, but we are set in place as part of a spiritual building. And that's something that we need to uh, grasp and think about because it will help us understand our relationship not only with God, but our relationship with one another. Look at 1 Peter uh, chapter 2 with me, please. First Peter 2, verses 4 and 5. And coming to him as to a living stone, which has been rejected by men, but is chosen and precious in the sight of God, you also, as living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God, through Jesus Christ. So each of us as saints are living stones in the spiritual house that is the church. And that's, that's an important thing for us to remember, as it was an important thing for the brethren there in Ephesus to remember. And of course, verse 20, which is key, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. So that's not typically a, a picture that we would paint nowadays of a cornerstone. But what is a cornerstone or what was a cornerstone in a building structure then? Holds all things together. Okay. Bruce says holds all things together. Okay. That's... All of those things are true. Yes. Thank you. Okay, so the cornerstone was what everything from the building went out from. All measurements came off that cornerstone. All buildings started from that cornerstone. If that cornerstone was not set properly, the building is not going to be a perfect building. With Christ being our cornerstone... The church is the perfect building. Everything else then builds from that cornerstone of Christ. You know, when we moved here, uh, we had a house built. We'd never had a house built. We always, I think that was our fourth home that we've owned or owned with the bank. Uh, And so I was excited about a newly built house. Now, I wasn't excited about the rules that my wife put in place for living in that newly built house. And we hadn't talked about that. That's a whole other story. Uh, But I was excited about that new house. But every day was not a good day in building our house. I only know that from the results that I see when things, there are certain things there that are not square. Now... I'm not a home builder. If I built a home, it would be an imperfect home for sure. Uh, Shane would be the one who could build a perfect home. Not me. Uh, But you see that. But if you think about a spiritual, if you think about us as this congregation being a spiritual house, a spiritual temple of God, and the fact that 
Christ being the perfect cornerstone. And then as points out here, what was then built on top of that? What, what started the foundation then? Apostles and prophets. That's exactly right. So then the apostles and prophets who were inspired of God and brought us God's inspired word, then they became the foundation. And then each building block, as in the case of the church at Ephesus, each member of the church then was fitted together and became part of that perfect temple or that perfect building, right? Think about the fact that each one of us here are part of the spiritual house of this church. Now, is the, is the building that we're sitting in, is this the church? No. It's a beautiful church house. It's a wonderful structure for us to be able to worship in. But God does not look at this building and say, this is my church. He looks at us as his children and says, this is my church. So it's critical when you think about it, am I in the structure that is built that is this local congregation, am I fitting in perfectly or as perfectly as I can? Obviously, we are, we are not perfect. <laughs> but when we start with Christ as the cornerstone and then his truth as the foundation, you know, we have it coming down to us just as they did, except we have it in written form, right? We have the perfect word of God. So God's truth is perfect. And then we as members of this congregation are built on that foundation. Verse 21, 22 says, In whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together, into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. So, again, the spiritual house, the spiritual dwelling of God is fitted together perfectly. God's the builder. Jesus is the chief cornerstone. The apostles and prophets bring us the truth. And then we are built on that foundation. Any comments before we move into chapter 3? And I didn't say it earlier, but please raise your hand if you do, and then... Yes, sir. I just find it interesting that he uses the concept of the Holy Temple. And remember, the temple that they were used to in Ephesus, the Temple of Diana. Which <laughs> That's was true. a great temple, and you just wonder if a lot of those people came out of serving Diana and the temple and are now part of this Holy Temple which he emphasizes to them that you are in the real temple of God. Now, very, very good point. Yeah, absolutely. So many of these Gentile Christians uh, would have come out of idolatry, right? With the, with the temple of, of Diana there in uh, Ephesus. And so... As was just pointed out, you think about that relationship and what they might have thought uh, now when they see this parallel uh, with the temple. Excellent. Good comment. Yes, sir. 
thinking of Matthew 16, 18, where Peter had con confessed that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of God, and Jesus said, upon this rock, I will build my church. So that cornerstone is the fact that he is the Christ, the Son of God, and God raised him from the dead. You remove that, and the whole house comes falling down. That's built upon that. Yeah, very good point. I mean, the, when you think about that, because it is Christ, and as you pointed out, that confession, um, and Christ is perfect, with him as the cornerstone and the foundation, it's going to be a perfect house, right? Excellent. Thank you. All right, let's move into chapter 3. Let's read, uh, we'll just read all the way through the first 13 verses. Ephesians 3, 1 through 13. For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles, if indeed you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace, which was given to me for you, that by revelation there was made known to me the mystery, as I wrote before in brief, by referring to this, when you read, you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which in other generations was not made known to the sons of men, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets in the spirit. To be specific, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel of which I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace which was given to me according to the working of his power. To me, the very least of all saints, this grace was given to preach the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ and to bring to light what is the administration of the mystery, which for ages has been hidden in God who created all things, so that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. This was in accordance with the eternal purpose, which he carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and confident access through faith in him. Therefore, I ask you not to lose heart at my tribulation on your behalf, for they are your glory. So this first half of Chapter 3 discusses uh, the mystery of Christ. And the last half, which you'll study next week, uh, is basically a prayer for the knowledge of God's will now that the mystery has been revealed. So, verse 1, For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles, if indeed you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace. So Paul describes himself here as the prisoner of Christ. Now, he is imprisoned at this time, right? But I don't think that's what he is saying. I think what he's saying is because of his relationship with Christ, that he is bound to the Lord, and he was given the responsibility to preach specifically to the Gentiles, and that he sees himself as the prisoner of Christ. Now, 
If you said Buddy's in prison, I think that's where it's going. That's fine. It's not going to make a not going to make a difference, right? But that's that's kind of how I see that. And he says that his bondage was for their benefit. Now, verse 2 discusses Paul's stewardship, and it says that that stewardship is given to me for you. So what is a stewardship? What does stewardship include, or what does it mean? Okay, a caretaker. Caretaker of someone else's property, someone else's information, uh, whatever, whatever it might be. We carry out, uh, we may oversee, we may distribute, but it is not ours. We are entrusted with that by the one who actually has ownership, right? And we are the stewards who are then accountable for what takes place. So Paul says, verse 2, if indeed you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace, which was given to me for you. So this is not, this is coming directly from God and Christ, and Paul is then accountable as a steward to carry that to the brethren. Let's look at Acts uh, 9 for a moment. Acts 9, verse 15. Now, this is taking a look at uh, Saul and his conversion. Acts 9, verse 15 says, But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine, the he being Saul, to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. And do you remember who it is that's speaking? Who makes this statement? Yeah, it's Christ. That's exactly right. Um, so this is during Saul's conversion. And this statement is made about the intention for the work that Paul will do. What he will be responsible for in spreading the gospel and the specific thing about it, of course, is the fact that he's going to be spreading the gospel to the Gentiles. So Paul's stewardship was to preach the gospel of Christ specifically to the Gentiles. All right, Ephesians 3.3, 3, that by revelation there was made known to me the mystery as I wrote before in brief. So what is a mystery? Okay, an unknown truth, something that's, that's been hidden, right? The truth exists, whatever it might be, but it's hidden and unknown to anybody other than the one who holds the mystery, right? It had not been revealed, now, the word translated revelation means to be plainly or distinctly declared or to be set forth or announced. 
So Paul received the answers to the mystery through direct revelation from God through the Holy Spirit. So Paul could preach the gospel accurately with confidence. Now for us, there, were, there was not a written word. There was, wasn't something that Paul could be handed, right? So he needed to receive direct revelation. How do we teach the same thing or preach the same thing that Paul carried? Somebody comes up to you and asks a question about what do you believe or why are you a Christian? You can always refer them to the Bible or tell them about your your past or something and how Jesus has saved you. And that's how we we get people to come into services and 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 repent of their sins and stuff. Yes, we have we have the complete Word of God in the Bible, right? Exactly as as she points out. And for us, we are able to preach or teach the word accurately because we have the scriptures. And, you know, it's interesting. I don't know how much time you spend talking to um, denominational folks. You know, I grew up in... Baptist Church on one side, Methodist Church on the other side of the family. Uh, both granddads were preachers. So I got all sorts of denominational doctrine, right? And it wasn't until, until I was exposed to the truth through my wife, before she was my wife, that I understood the scriptures to be inspired, most folks in most folks who would claim to be Christians in the United States do not believe that God's word is God breathed. You know, I've got a number of relatives that I will have discussion with. Uh, they've kind of stopped having discussion with me on this, but <laughs> but I've had it in the past where we discuss the fact that. God's word is inspired. It's God-breathed. They believe it to be uh, just a good general moral guide that men wrote and God had something to do with, but kind of in the background, right? So it, you can constantly be making changes as, as society changes. We have confidence in the word of God because we know it always applies. It will never change. And God will never expect something out of us that he has not given us in his word. Any comments? All right. Verse 4 and 5. By referring to this, when you read, you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ which in other generations was not made known to the sons of men as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets in the spirit. So the Christians at Ephesus were receiving the word of God, preached, taught, and written to them by inspiration. Because like we talked about, God had 
revealed that to Paul as an apostle. Today, we have God's word, as it tells us in 2 Timothy 3. All scriptures inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate or complete and equipped for every good work. There's nothing more that we need in our service to God than what we already have. At that time, a different situation in what Paul was presenting. All right, verse 6, to be specific that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ through the gospel. So Paul makes a statement here about the Christians and makes a very bold statement. The Gentiles, to be specific that the Gentiles, so he's talking about the mystery, right? That the Gentiles are fellow members of the body, fellow heirs, and partakers of the promise. Now, could he not have said that? Could he not have stopped with the Gentiles are fellow heirs? He could have. But the emphasis is placed on it so that there was no question for those Gentile Christians or for the Jewish brethren that were members of that church, what the status was of these Gentile Christians. A fellow heir, what would it mean to be a fellow heir if you had uh, somebody passes away and they've got three kids? If those kids are all fellow heirs, what does that mean? They are all receiving inheritance, right? In this case, you have the Jewish Christians and the Gentile Christians, and they are all receiving an equal inheritance. How might the Jews have felt about that? Yeah, not so hot, right? Coming from a relationship where they had, they were the children of God, now moving to a relationship where, yes, they still have that relationship with God, but so do all the Gentiles. I would think that probably caused them a fair amount of angst, to say the least. Now, for us, how do we make application of this to our lives? What does this say to us about all brethren? Yeah, that's absolutely right. Think about the fact that um, is there anybody ever that's a brother or sister in Christ that for some reason you just don't click with them? I mean, I can't imagine it would be me, <laughs> but it is possible, right? So if that's the case, how do you deal with that brother or sister? Well, you think about the fact that as we talked about 
that temple and each being a building block in the temple, they're a building block in that temple just like you are, just like I am, right? So when we deal with one another, we have to remember that all of those brethren who are in a right relationship with God all have the inheritance equally. Brian. You know, in a, in a typical inheritance situation, if you have additional heirs, that means less for the original because there is a finite pool that's going to be passed down and all of a sudden there's this new heir. Well, now there's less for me. And I think one of the beautiful things that he does here in Ephesians is he lays that groundwork in chapter one and chapter two to say that's not the case. You know, there's not a finite pool of blessings that are coming to you. There are abundant blessings. And so now just because the Gentiles are going to be fellow heirs, that does not mean any less for you. It's just more for everyone. Yeah, that's, a, that's, that's an exceptional point. That's exactly right. I mean, we'll get to a little more of that here if we get all the way to verse 13. But you think about the fact that, well, it's easy in our family. If I'm gone, we got one kiddo, right? So <laughs> where the inheritance goes, whatever those nickels turn out to be, uh, that's, a pretty, that's a pretty simple one. But... As Brian pointed out, you know, if you've got a family of uh, six kids, even if they all receive equal inheritance, unless that, those folks were really wealthy, it's going to be watered down to not much, right? In the case of our inheritance or Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians, it's all bountiful blessings from God. And it's kind of like um, loving your kids, right? Uh, if you've got one kid, two kids, eight kids, you still have enough love for every one of them. And loving one does not take away from your love for another, right? As Brian points out, that is the way the blessings of God are, which is uh, wonderful for the rest of us. All right, so it said, fellow heirs, fellow members, uh, New King James Version says, of the same body. It means, uh, literally, joint membership of a body. So, once again, if you think, if you think about a body, um, and we are all joint members of that body, and then partakers of the promise, New American Standard. New King James says joint sharers. That kind of, uh, kind of finishes off the thoughts we've been talking about, joint sharers. Uh, everyone is a partaker of that same promise. All right, verse 7. Of which, of which I was made a minister according to the gifts of of grace, which was given to me according to the working of his power, to me the very least of all saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ. So Paul was made a minister to serve God and, and considered it an extreme honor to be able to preach the gospel. 
Look with me to 1 Timothy 1. First Timothy 1, verse 12. This speaks to how Paul saw himself. First Timothy 1. I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has strengthened me because he considered me faithful, putting me into service, even though I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor. Yet I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief And the grace of our Lord was more than abundant with the faith and love which are found in Christ Jesus. It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners among who I am foremost of all. So Paul, because of his activity of persecuting Christians, saw himself as the foremost of all sinners. And was very thankful for the mercy that he had been shown so that he had the opportunity to obey the gospel. All right, verse 8. To me, the very least of all saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ. So he considered it a privilege to be able to preach this. And I think this kind of speaks to uh, what Brian had said, the unfathomable, unfathomable riches of Christ. So what does that word mean? Unfathomable. Okay. Yeah, we can't even, uh, there's it's like we can understand this much, but those riches of Christ are as far, far beyond what we could see or understand. That's pretty amazing to think about because the scriptures provide us with a number of different looks at who Jesus was and the blessings through Christ and uh, all of the things that we can take advantage of as Christians, and yet for us, as with for them, no matter how, if Paul had stayed with the church at Ephesus for the rest of his life, he could not have preached all of what was available through Christ. He could hit the high points, but they're too great. Verse 9, and to bring to light what is the administration of the mystery which for ages has been hidden in God who created all things. To bring to light what is the administration of the mystery which for ages has been hidden in God who created all things. So look at 1 Peter 1. Let's look at 1 Peter 1. Beginning in verse 10. First Peter 1 verse 10 reads, As to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating 
as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you in these things, which now have been announced to you through those who preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit, sent from heaven, things in which angels long to look. Now, so you go back then to uh, verse 9 in Ephesians 3, to bring to light the administration of the mystery, which for all ages has been hidden. So God determined long before this time that the Gentiles were going to be fellow heirs, right? He had made that determination. And yet it was hidden. And there were those who longed to know, but it's always interesting to me when you see passages like this that say, uh, even the angels longed to look into that and did not know. All right, we're going to stop right there for this week. And Leland can pick up at verse 10. Thank you all for your good participation.